Won't you take your copy of God's Word? Hopefully it's the one that you've brought with you. If not, there are some in the chair backs in front of you and join me in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, you'll find it on page 982. 982 if you're using an ESV or a chairback Bible. We are coming towards the end of our study in the book of Philippians, coming down to chapter 4. We've been seeing many things, um, specifically in chapter 3, about our righteousness, about who we are before the Lord, and how necessary it is that we exercise faith in Christ. And we take our merit, all those things that we might count as gain, those things that uh, either inherited things, Maybe you were born in the right family. Maybe you've done certain religious activities. And you might be thinking that you can count those towards your acceptance before God. Well, in chapter 3, he completely annihilates that argument. And we've been looking at that. And then he gave us some encouragement to uh, mature in our faith. And so last week, we looked at what it means to mature in our faith, how we are to imitate those who are mature in, in their faith, And now, as he comes into Philippians 4, he wants to continue to challenge us in relationship to our joy in Christ. We have entitled this series, In Christ, Practical Joy in an Impractical World. Many uh, scholars and, and commentators will say that the book of Philippians is all about joy, but it's sometimes rarely qualified, that in order to experience the joy that that God wants us to experience, we cannot do that apart from Him. We cannot do that apart from Christ and the Spirit of Christ living and indwelling us. Our joy in the Lord is important. Joy in the Lord. We talked about these words for happiness and joy, happiness being fortuna. When fortunes are up, happiness is, is up. But when it comes to joy, joy is something that's immovable. It's steady. It's, it's, it's not uh, in flux. But instead, it's something that is a sure and steady anchor for us when it's tethered to the proper anchor. And our anchor is to be Christ. But things happen in this life. Storms come. That, that cause us to be battered and, and broken and bruised. I think it was Spurgeon who says, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me upon the rock of ages. Do you have that mentality? That you have come to know that the storms of this life simply are there to cause us to be more dependent upon Christ and His rock-steady firmament under us, His anchor, Our joy in the Lord is challenged in many ways, and it is done in many venues, and sometimes it's venues unexpected. Yes, it can even happen within the local assembly. Our joy can be shaken in circumstances that we find ourselves in, in relationships that we find ourselves in, possibly right here. Now, one would hope that the church would be a safe haven from friction and strife, But that's not always the case because we still fight this flesh. We are still being sanctified by the Spirit of Christ. So there are things that that, that God allows us to endure in our relationships, even amongst one another, that are ways in which He purifies us and He sanctifies us. 
Some of us grew up in churches that had a good, peaceful dynamic, but others of us were part of churches that, well, we might only be able to describe them as nightmare scenarios at times. But there are reasons for this beyond the cliche that, well, we're all a bunch of hypocrites. In fact, many that call themselves Christians are active members in churches and in leadership that are truly not people who have been saved, who are not regenerate, who don't have the mind of Christ. And they're there and they just want power or prestige or their prerogative. And with that mentality and with that spirit, they cause conflict. Now, on the other hand, we have truly saved people that sometimes can just be at odds with one another. See it in Acts chapter 15. Two of the greatest missionaries of all time, Paul being one of them, was at an impasse with Barnabas because he wanted to take John Mark with him on this trip. Paul says, no, John Mark has already ducked out of this before and he's undependable, we can't take him. And so they had it out over it. It was, not, it was a schism. But we see that later God redeemed the work of the men that were involved, even Mark, who was the source of that contention. Well, when conflict arises, there has to be action. There has to be action. And in the church in Philippi, what we're finding out here in the, the, the first few verses of chapter 4 is that there are a couple of ladies that, for all intents and purposes, seem to be, and Paul will affirm, their salvation. They are saved. They are regenerate. They've been walking with the Lord, who knows for how many years, but we can uh, be assured that they are mature in their faith. But they find themselves in a tough situation, and they're at odds with one another for whatever reason. So Paul, before he closes this letter, takes action and he singles them out. Today, as we look at what action he takes, we see in verse 1 an exhortation. Verse 1, we're going to see this exhortation for this church. And in verses 2 and 3, we will see an entreaty. But before we do, let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us during our time in his word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it means to your church. We thank you that you have revealed yourself through it. And we thank you that, Lord, that we can use it, that it is beneficial for reproof, for rebuke, and for training in righteousness, that we might be a people who are complete, not lacking anything. And so we ask that by the power of your spirit at work, through the proclamation of your word, that you might change our hearts, that you might convict our hearts for where we need to repent, and Father, ultimately that you would cause us to be dependent upon you, that we would, we would fall hard against you and bring all of our trouble, all of, of our insecurities, all of our sin to your cross, remembering that that is where you paid for it. Father, we thank you for Christ Jesus, we thank you for his blood upon the cross that covers our sin. The great statement that has hushed Mount Sinai's flame and extinguished it. It is finished. We thank you for your righteousness, Lord Jesus. We ask that you would help us 
to continually lay down our pride and look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith. Father, speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at this exhortation that we've been given here in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This exhortation to stand firm in the Lord is surrounded by five really descriptive phrases of affectionate language for Paul's cherished church, the people at Philippi. The first is an acknowledgement of their unity in the family of God. He calls them brothers or brethren. He's reminding them of their collective identity in the Lord. We may come from different families. We may come from different backgrounds, different cultures, but we have a vital connection in common, and it is only in we share now the same Father. We once were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, and now we're children of the Heavenly Father. Who has one, in one hymn it says, who he safely gathers within his bosom. Indwelled by the same spirit, we are able together to cry, Abba, Father. We have a new relationship. We once were enemies, now we're, we're friends and we're more than friends. We've been adopted by the spirit of God and it's irrevocable. We can cry to him as a good and perfect father, regardless of what we've experienced in our lives with our earthly fathers. We know he transcends all of that. Notice too, just as in the previous verses, Paul includes himself with him, or with them. Even though he's away from them, even though he's imprisoned, Here's what we know about Paul. He's not just some traveling evangelist that flies in, preaches a sermon, asks for hands, asks for commitments, walking aisles, praying prayers, slapping on the back, saying they're saved, and then running away, taking the money and run, never to be seen from or heard from again, which is the pattern of some. No. Even in his imprisonment, he is looking towards a church that he knows God has worked there. And he's poured out his spirit there. And he's not just handing out instructions from afar. He's not doing this in a domineering fashion. He wants to make sure again that he's saying, guys, I'm with you. We are brothers and sisters in this thing. I'm your brother. We are family. And in just a moment, he's going to turn to two of his sisters in the faith. And he's going to entreat them to act like they are sisters in the faith. But before he does, he takes a step further in this reminder. The second and third affectionate language that he uses, he says, whom I love. And at the end of the verse, you'll see, my beloved. They are God's beloved. And because they are God's beloved, because God has gone to such lengths to save his people, Paul is saying, you're my beloved too. I love you as well. And here's the thing, as a church, we're to consider one another as such. If Christ went to the links he went to to show his great love for you, that while you were still sinners, he died on the cross for you and gave his all for you, I am to view you through the eyes and through the mind of Christ, that he gave up everything, that you might be redeemed if you are his. 
I am to, to think of you as such. You're to look upon me and to think of me as such. And we are to share in that fellowship and that love for one another within this body. We're told to share in love. The love that's been demonstrated by the Father. And there's none greater. Think of the final instructions or some of the final instructions that Jesus would give his disciples in the upper room in John chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. Connected with this love language for them is the fourth in this line of affectionate language, he says, I long for you. I have this longing for you. Well, we've heard the terminology absence makes the heart grow fonder. He's definitely been absent from them. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but I've experienced this. I know we have a fellow pastor here who's probably experiencing this, being away from his uh, church family. But every time I'm away from my church family, uh, every time I'm away from you for whatever reason, and I attend another church, I can't help but think, I wonder what's going on at Cormdale. (laughs) I wonder, and I'm not just talking about, I wonder what's gone wrong. Like, I wonder if the projector's not working today, or I'm wondering if they're having a time up there. No, um, I'm thinking how I long to be with those I love in the faith. Now, I can fellowship with those Christians, but I'm always thinking of you. And I'm thinking about what it means for us to come together and how we do things here to gather around God's word and to center ourselves on God's word. And, and I miss those times when I'm away. Well, in the same way, Paul is saying, I'm missing those times with you. My spirit longs to be with you. We might read this and read this language and start to think, this is a little weird. We might. We might look and go, this is, this is a little weird. He's talking to these folks as if he's talking to his significant other, if he had one. Or the way we might talk to our significant other. We're talking about loving and longing for That's exactly right. That's exactly what he's doing. And Paul has encouraged us to imitate him. See, we misuse the language of love given to the church so often and we supplement it into places and feed it into romantic love and we say that's the way God intended us to use it. But that's not the way God intended us to use it. God has spoken to his church. He's given scripture and love language to his church. We use passages like 1 Corinthians 13 in wedding ceremonies, when in fact they should be used in church covenant ceremonies. Let me remind you of what we share in in the church. This is from 1 Corinthians 13. This is to the church at Corinth. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That is how we are to love one another. Not just at home, 
But here, among one another, the fellowship of the church should be marked out by love. It's a commandment from Christ, and this is what love looks like within the church. We're talking bearing all things, believing the best about one another, and enduring all things. And yet we can see how when that breaks down, why churches crumble, and why people leave, and why we are so disunified. But it's a beautiful description of love, one that is not just shared between man and wife, but between the church. That's the original intention. And it's undoubtedly a, a difficult command, but it's a command nonetheless, and we are to strive to fulfill it by the power of Christ. Well, look at what he says lastly. He goes on affectionately calling them, my joy and my crown. Wait, isn't Christ supposed to be our joy? Isn't that what Paul has been telling us almost this entire time? We can see it like this, yes, Christ is absolutely to be the centerpiece of our joy. None can hinder. But that does not mean that we cannot take joy in one another when we see each other maturing in our faith. I take great joy when I have conversation with you and I can tell that, that God is kindling a fire within you. When you tell me that you've been in God's word more than you have been in the past, I, I think I take great joy in that. I'm like, oh. Praise God. It causes me to rejoice and bubble over in rejoicing because of what God is doing within you. Well, that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing brothers and sisters getting excited about each other's joy in the Lord. Not just about circumstances that come up in life. Yes, we can, we can rejoice with each other when things happen that are good, but the, the main rejoicing we should have is knowing that Christ is for us. If Christ is for us, who can be against us? And he who did not spare his own son but gave him up, how, will, will he not give us all things? Yes, and we enjoy all things and we mature in our faith and we take great joy in one another. Consider the words of the Apostle John in 3 John 3. He says, for I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. He said, I greatly rejoice. Some translations even say, I have no greater joy than to see that my children are walking in the faith. It should be the same for us when we hear of one another maturing in our walk. And we should be involved in each other's lives that we know when this is happening. And we should be involved in each other's lives that we know when we're not. And we encourage each other to do so. What does he mean by crown? What does he mean by, and, and you are my crown? What is Paul saying here? Paul is using this language that he uses elsewhere, that they are his laurel of honor. They are a testimony to all that he has not run this race in vain. This had me thinking this week. Who is your crown? Think about it. Who is your crown? You might be thinking, what are you talking about? What is going on here? What do you mean my crown? Who have you dis discipled? Who have you discipled? Have you shared the gospel with someone? And now you see them walking in the faith? 
I hope you can point to someone this morning, church. If not, let me encourage you. That is your command. That is your commission. Make disciples of all nations. That's what you've been called to. Do it. Get to work. Share the gospel. Share the gospel with a family member. Share the gospel with a friend. And don't just share the gospel with them and go, okay. But, but, but encourage them and say, I will help. I will walk through this with you. And hopefully you're living your life in a way where they can see you're not the same. And you can say, I've had people walk with me through this. I have great hope and joy and I want you to know it. And when you do so and you walk with them, you can know. I have a crown. I have a crown. And, and it's not just one that we can sort of put on our heads and puff out our chest and strut around like, have you seen my disciple? No. One day we're going to take those crowns and we're going to cast them before the feet of the one who is worthy of all. And I hope, oh, I hope and I pray that one day I watch before the throne of God and I see you, you cast crowns before the feet of God. I, I hope that you do. And I, I rejoice with you in hopes for that day. Now he, he exhorts his beloved with this. Stand firm. Stand firm thus in the Lord. We've looked at this word already. This is that same word we saw for hold fast last week. Stand firm, hold fast, stoicheo. It's that military term for marching orders. We've been given orders. So why does he bring this up again? Why reinforce this? Alec Moyer states this. He says, they are in the midst of enemies, especially the enemies of the cross. There's a real danger that they will be drawn away by their present threat and a consequent need for a resolute stand. We don't know what the Lord has in mind for us. But what we do know is that he causes calamity. And he does so in order that, that the tested genuineness of our faith be seen. And we have to stand firm. We have to stand firm. And not only that but we have to hold fast to his truth. We have to consider ourselves as soldiers. We do. Paul would encourage Timothy and say, what soldier gets involved in civilian pursuits? Remember we talked about that last week about growing in holiness? We need to take those things that are truly civilian pursuits in our lives and, give, and put them away. Put, put them on the back burner and set Christ and his mission and his goal for us and our maturity first. And that's what Paul is encouraging these people to do. And that's what he is about to encourage these two ladies to do. You know, it's a great courtesy of Paul to begin this way. To begin with this encouragement. Because I think Paul probably knows you catch more flies with honey, right? And so he's saying, listen, you guys, I love you. I love you dearly. I long for you. I'm only going to tell you what is for your best. Now stand firm. And now he's going to turn and he's going to start to reprimand a couple people in that church. And if they will remember, Paul loves me and has my best in mind. We're talking about the guy who the Holy Spirit penned 1 Corinthians 13 through. We can hope all things when he gives us this message. 
Look at this entreaty. This entreaty in the next verse. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So these affirmations, these descriptions of their connection and love with one another through Christ, he gives that to them so that they can understand their mind and keep bitterness, a root of bitterness, from growing up within their congregation. And it, it should encourage us to begin to take action to weed these things out of our minds as well so that we keep unity on a personal level within the church body. We may see something taking place within the church. And we may say, you know, I, I'm not going to get involved. I'm just going to stay out of it. But here's the thing. I found in church life, more oftentimes than not, when we should get involved, we don't. And when we shouldn't, we do. So how do we discern these things? Because there's necessary discernment. Paul says, I'm going to get involved and he even calls out specific people in this congregation and says, you know, you need to get involved in this as well. Because if not, it's going to rip you apart. He calls out a couple of people, Euodia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Now, there's a lot of speculation here to the identity of these individuals. In the context, they're both referred to as ladies in the feminine. Though some have noted Syntyche actually was a man's name in those days. But even more, some also take these two and they allegorize and they say well he's talking about he's using these names to 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 talk about jewish believers and gentile believers but here's the thing that's not specified well another question surfaces in this as well what exactly is the beef that these two have with each other what are they fighting about interesting you should ask there's no answer for that either there's a lot of unknowns here, but in fact, that's good. It's okay. We might find it better that, that it's not described because it should make us sensitive about the situations that we find ourselves in in the body, no matter what they might be. So without it described here, we can't just look and point and go, well, you know, that, I don't have that problem. That's not, I'm not having that issue with somebody else. And then in the back of my mind, our spirit's going... But it's something else, and you have to deal with it. So praise God, we don't get the, the, the beef here. Instead, we see and can understand these ladies are disputing. And it is important for the sake of the church that they cease. And their charge is that they agree and that they do so in the Lord. The longer they allow this rift to go on between them, it will eventually affect the entirety of the church and can tear it all asunder. Look at what Paul writes in Ephesians 4. So go back to the left if you're using a chairback Bible. Actually, if you're using any Bible, excuse me. But um, uh, you're not going to find Ephesians after Philippians in any Bible. And if you do, we need to talk. Um, let's look at Chapter 4, starting in verse 25. If you're using a chairback Bible, you'll find it on page 978. Look at what, what Paul encourages the church at Ephesus with. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. As it comes up here in Scripture this morning, perhaps your mind might go to another person in this church with whom you don't think very highly. It's possible. Let's not act like it's not possible. Maybe they've done something and you're just like, I don't understand why they think that way. I just totally disagree with their mindset on almost everything. Maybe that's what you're thinking. But instead of taking action about it, you've just allowed this inactivity to start to stir some bitter emotions. And maybe when they speak up, you immediately have a, re a visceral reaction in your spirit. God, you start to bristle. You start to mull it over and over. See, what's going to happen is one day this person is going to speak. And you're not just going to think about it in your head. You're going to start to make comments in response. Be warned of this. Because one day, the attitude within is going to break forth. That's called wrath. And we all experience it. You're going to allow this to be bottled up. And then you're going to say something that's hurtful. And disunifying. And the sad part is... In most of these occasions, the other person has no idea. You've allowed something to go unchecked in your own spirit about it. About whatever. And so here's the thing. You have to deal with it. If they don't know, you have to deal with it. And you have to forgive. I've always loved this quote. And I don't know where it originated. But it doesn't matter because there's truth to it. If there is unforgiveness in you, it is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. The only person that is being affected by all of it is you. You are the one that's dying. It affects you. But furthermore, because we are joined one to another, just as Paul said in Ephesians 4, it affects us all when we're joined in covenant community. So if one part of the body is being poisoned, it's going to affect the rest of the body. So consider, consider the health of us all when you have these urges. Paul now urges them. He pleads with these two. He singles two people out. Agree with one another in the Lord. Agree is another version of a word that we've been seeing throughout this book. Phroneo. Direct your minds. I want to just quickly insert again. The Christian faith is a mindful faith. You do not turn off your minds. You don't. We think. And we're called to think. 
We're called to use our minds. And he's saying, direct your minds. Come together and direct your minds toward the Lord and toward reconciliation. You both possess, to, uh, you both possess the Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit of Christ cannot be disunified. So you're not to remain this way, because if you do, you will dishonor his name. Get things right. This disagreement doesn't look to be like a core doctrinal disagreement. If it was, Paul usually nips that in the bud. He usually has strong, stout things to say about those who are doctrinally unsound. He would say something like, Euodia have nothing to do with Syntyche. She is in error. And cast her out, that she might repent or something along those lines but he doesn't he doesn't so we can understand this relate this is a relational issue and we have to understand that in our lives we're going to have these relationships that are tough they hurt but we have to be the ones that humble ourselves and are reconciled and here's why because of philippians 2 that tells us that that was the pattern set for us in Christ. He humbled himself, taking on the very form of a servant. And we are his representatives. We are his children. We're to follow in the footsteps of our Father. Look at verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women whom have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So in this process, in order to aid this process of their reconciliation, he beseeches the actions of someone outside of them. He wants a mediator. Whoever it is, they have to be a genuine peacekeeper. He says, help these women. Help. Help's an interesting word here. I like it. Sulambano. To throw together. To seize or to take hold of. And the reason why I like it is because um, I, I see this happen in, in, in and amongst us sometimes. Um, and I know parents, we see this with, with our children. Um, you start to see one of them start to act iffy. And you think, I think as a southerner, uh, somebody needs to get a hold of them. And they need to do it quick. And we might be tempted when, when we're seeing this strife to, to just maybe even play mama and grab them by the ear. Thank you, mothers. Grab them by the ear and bring them in and sit them down and say, you're going to hash this out. We're going to hash this out. Um, but here's the thing. Paul's not advocating that in particular. Uh, he's not advocating violence. He's not saying, look, just take them by the ear and sit them down. Even as badly as you want to do that, resist the urge. But in the end, someone has to be there to prevail upon them and mediate between them. They have to. Because these ladies know better. And for the sake of the church, this has to happen. Because these aren't baby believers. Notice, these ladies have labored side by side with him in the gospel. They've been yoked together with Paul in this struggle for the true gospel. They have, they have done this together. Women, you are a vital role in ministry. Not the role of pastor elder. That has been reserved because of creation intention with male leadership. We have to understand that. But beyond that, 
You're, you're free to serve in so many ways and to encourage both men and women in this church. And these ladies have done that. They have struggled for the true gospel. But look, he includes a man named Clement. This is the only place we see him mentioned in scripture, but in the context of this letter, we see him to be a faithful brother in the Lord. Well, Clement and these ladies are joined by another group that has very important language. The rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What's this book of life? Well, in Hebraic history, there was a book of citizenship in Jewish ancestry, which they called the book of life, one which you could be in and then even have your name blotted out because you were a covenant breaker. But that was only found in the old covenant community. The other, of course, is the Lamb's book of life. This book has names in it that were chosen before the foundation of the world for salvation. These are those that experience the blessings of eternal life. If you want to understand that better, even with the language that I just used, go look at passages like Luke 10.20, Hebrews 12.23. Look specifically at Revelation 13.8 and 17.8. You'll see the emphasis of those passages help us to better understand the truth of this book of life. But the inclusion of this description here. And the placement of these ladies within that book help us to understand that Paul understood them to be truly saved. He'd seen the fruit in their lives. And he says, it, it, is, it is with great confidence I say these ladies know the Lord. <clears throat> One pastor comments and says, these women were valuable co-workers with the Apostle Paul. We can assume their dispute was over something comparatively minor. But whatever it was, Paul wanted them to simply put it aside on the grounds that their names were both in the book of life. That's one way of putting things into perspective. I dare say that both of them since have had a good laugh over how they both wound up mentioned in the book of Philippians. Leaving a record of their squabble for all posterity. And you can count your blessings perhaps. At least the tangle that you have with the Smith guy for the last three months is not going to wind up in the Bible. Yet in the end, here's the challenge for us. If you are a believer, then for the sake of Christ and his bride and his body, agree in the Lord. Yield your rights to someone else. Humble yourself and make amends where amends need to be made. Reconcile yourself not only to the other but to the Lord. Because in your actions there, there is sin. Put your differences aside. Maybe you have a personality hang up with someone else. Put it aside. Work out whatever is entangling your heart with another. Whatever strife you have with someone. If it's known to them, approach them. Approach them. The beautiful thing, and the, one of the reasons why we come to these tables each and every week, why we observe the Lord's table, is that we might be mindful each and every week of our relationship one to another. 
I don't know if you knew that that's one of the reasons why we do this every week, but I want to encourage you. That's one of the reasons why we do this every week. Because we are instructed in Scripture, do not come and eat and drink unworthy. If there is something between you and a brother or a sister in this faith family, you're to go to them before you come to these tables in order that God might be merciful to you. And you're to get it right. Just as we're instructed, leave your sacrifice on the altar, go get it right, and come back and finish worship. And those are the things that are connected to what we observe here each and every week. And so if you've been allowing this, maybe this root of bitterness to continue to grow within you because of someone else, do not come to these tables this morning before you get it right. Do not do that. Do not eat and drink condemnation upon yourself. Because the true believer will take such action. They'll take drastic action if necessary to be reconciled one to another. If it's known to them, ask for forgiveness. If it's unknown to them, wrestle with the Lord over it. Wrestle with the Lord over it. That you might be free from this bitterness you have. I was told last week, I said, I said, leave those things that entangle you in your seat light them on fire before you come to these tables and someone came to me and said are you sure that was the best way of putting that i was like yeah probably not so i'm gonna i'll tell you this morning don't just leave them in your seat and think that they're gonna stay there make sure that they're laid before the cross take them to the cross where all of those things were paid for and where the burden of your heart can roll away just as Christians' burden rolls down the hill. Do that this morning. Gaze upon the glorious mercy, grace, and forgiveness shown, the love shown there in the act of God at the cross. And be reminded, that is your motivation to walk in love with the Lord and with his people. We cannot forget this either. We once were enemies, not one to another, but to God. But according to his mercy, his grace, his love, he forgave us because of Christ Jesus. He took that enmity and made peace with Christ's blood on the cross. And by faith in Christ, his life, death, resurrection, we can experience forever peace with God. Peace with God. And if you have not, I encourage you, deal with that first today. And if you have, then search your heart. Search your heart. Put aside any conflicts of personality today for the sake and the goal and the cause of Christ. Put them aside for the crowns, for the joy and the honor of the Lord Jesus. That we may rejoice in the Lord always as he's about to encourage us in the next verse. And again, I say rejoice. Do not sacrifice your joy in the Lord any longer because of your pride. Be reconciled.